I'm Luke. I'm John. Listen very carefully. I shall say this only once. You stupid boy. Today, we're looking at the sitcoms of David Croft. Are you free, Mr. Furlong? I'm free. It's cracking TV. They spent their whole lives watching TV. Now they're sharing their opinions with you. Because now they want to have some fun. With a channel that is all brand new. Get comfy and without a further ado. Welcome to Cracking TV. We're Luke and John, and we're on a mission to create the dream schedule for our own network, Cracking TV. Each episode, we'll be talking about classic shows from a particular genre, picking one to fill a slot in our schedule. We'll be taking it in turns to be the commissioner and the pitcher. The pitcher will bring a number of shows in the hope of scoring that big commission. However, the commissioner has already got a first-rate show in mind. The pitcher desperately wants one of his shows to win to avoid the embarrassment of being thrown out of the commissioner's office. So this week, I'm the commissioner with the open slot. Luke, thanks for coming in. I've asked you to pitch some David Croft sitcoms. My slot is gaping. Please show me that you've got the right thing to fill it with. Yeah, there's lots to choose from, but probably a good place to start is with a little bit of his background. He was born into a showbiz family. His dad, Reginald Charland, was a very successful radio actor in Hollywood, while his mum, Annie Croft, was a stage actress. She starred in the 1927 silent film On With The Dance and was the first woman to own a West End theatre company. So he was a a Nepo baby back in those days. Absolutely. His first public appearance was aged just seven in a commercial that was aired in cinemas. Wow. He followed his parents into the entertainment business and he worked on uh, numerous theatre shows. He did have a very brief acting career. As he said, it began and ended with an uncredited appearance in Goodbye Mr Chips. Classic movie though. But of course, he's of an age where the war intervened and he enlisted in the Royal Artillery in 1942. He served in North Africa, India and Singapore. The war might have some influence on his later career. After the war, he went back to working in the entertainment industry and he had a particular interest in pantomime. When he eventually joined the BBC, he had it written into his contract that he could take time out to produce pantos. Have you ever tried to get that clause inserted in your contracts at work, Luke? No, I should do though, shouldn't I? But we're getting ahead of ourselves because before he got to the BBC, he went to Associated Rediffusion. He turned down working for Auntie after they offered just £300 for six months in the role of trainee producer, whereas commercial television splashed the cash. Even back in those days, I guess that was the big difference between the two. Turned out, though, Associated Rediffusion weren't really a big light entertainment broadcaster. Of course, they were the London weekday franchise, and it was the weekend franchise at that time, ATV, run by Lou Grade, where all of the light entertainment programmes tended to go. So he didn't hang around at Associated Rediffusion for long, and went up to Newcastle to join Time Tees for their launch in 1959. The first show he produced was Ned Shed. This was a so-called ad mag, which features the host talking about various products. In this particular show, things Ned could keep in his shed. (laughs) One thing that always strikes me when you talk about those early days of ITV is what powerhouses each of the individual regional licensees really were. It's why the London area, and indeed at that time the Midlands area, were split into separate weekday and weekend franchises because they were so powerful and it was felt to reduce their power ever so slightly, you had to have two competing companies. We've got David Croft at Time Tees. And it was there he got his only formal guidance in how to produce TV. Exec producer Philip Jones explained the mechanics of how to make a programme. 
he placed three pennies on a table to represent the cameras and started to move them about with his fingers. He said, don't cross your fingers and you won't get your cables tangled. To be fair, I wish someone had told me that. Croft followed up with, what about the booms and sound? And the reply came back, don't bother about them, they'll sort themselves out. (laughs) That's all you needed to know. Fantastic. Croft finally joined the BBC's light entertainment department in the 60s. He produced a number of shows, including This Is Your Life. That was seen as a sort of punishment show if you hadn't got on with some talent. He did Up Pompeii with Frankie Howard. And he also did a sitcom called Beggar My Neighbour. It was while producing Beggar, he was introduced to an actor called Jimmy Perry. Ah, okay. Perry gave him an unsolicited script for a show called The Fighting Tigers. I think I might see where this is leading. So this is leading to our first show proper. The Fighting Tigers became Dad's Army. So Jimmy Perry was an actor working on a show and David Croft was producing that show. Then the two of them got together to write their own sitcom, which became Dad's Army. Exactly. And one of the reasons why Perry wrote The Fighting Tigers was that he wanted to appear in a sitcom. He wrote the part of Walker for himself, but of course he didn't get that role. Croft didn't think he was good enough. So he was hurt for a little bit, but then obviously he got over that and they produced some great work together. David Croft was also the director on Dad's Army, right? Yeah, he directed, produced and wrote. When Croft received this unsolicited script, he took it to the head of comedy, Michael Mills, who liked it, but suggested that Croft write it with Perry because Perry had no TV writing experience. They got 80 episodes out of it in nine series. The first episode went out on the 31st of July, 1968, and it ran until the 13th of November 1977, and it's still repeated to this day. Well, it's never not been on TV, has it? For anyone who's not familiar, most people will be, the titular Dad's Army is the Home Guard. People who were not able, in many cases because of their age, to go and fight abroad in World War II. And so these people were civilians, but also had a sort of part-time role in the armed forces and were there to defend the towns and villages of the UK in the event of a German invasion. That's right, and Dad's Army is about the home guard of the fictional town of Wilmington-on-Sea. The first episode, there were sort of two openings to it. Croft and Perry had planned a set-piece opening to introduce the home guard in the style of a newsreel. But Paul Fox, who was controller of BBC One at the time, was a bit worried that the show might be seen to be making light of the war and insisted on an alternative opening. At the time, in 1968, there was this campaign, I'm Backing Britain, where celebrities and MPs try to boost the British economy. So the first episode featured a cold open where we see Captain Mannering in 1968 addressing a forum about how he was backing Britain just like he did in the 40s. The whole of Dad's army is therefore technically told in flashback. That's interesting, I didn't realise that. Is that ever returned to at the end or is it literally just set up in the first episode? Never returned to. And the whole thing is 100% BBC politics because it was the only way they were going to get it on screen. Wow. We could look at some of the characters. I've already mentioned Captain Mannering. He's played by Arthur Lowe. Mannering was the pompous local bank manager and got the role as captain in the Home Guard. He'd been a lieutenant in the First World War, although he didn't get to see combat, and he was embarrassed by this. And I think this explains some of the chip on his shoulder. The local bank manager in those days would have been a hugely important figure in any town. It's not like now where banking is done online. Absolutely. He had his bank clerk, Arthur Wilson, played by John LeMessurier, who was the sergeant in the platoon. There was a class piece going on here because Wilson was upper middle class. Mannering was, I suppose, lower middle class. In many ways, you'd have expected Wilson to have been the bank manager and the captain of the platoon, but he isn't. 
and Wilson had a sensibility about how things should be done, which led to his catchphrase. Do you think that's wise, sir? <laughs> in one sense, the, the comedy is the chip on Mannering's shoulder and the sense of inferiority that he has for reasons of class, which are subverted by the fact that his actual positions are superior. Yes. There's also this sense that his underling is actually more capable than him, which is an interesting comic idea in itself. But sadly, those two things somewhat go together to reinforce the idea that your social betters are your betters. There's a reason why these people are put in charge of the country and, and it's because they are bred to be better than the rest of us. Reinforcing the stereotypes. Yes, exactly, yeah. Then there was Lance Corporal Jack Jones, played by Clive Dunn, and he was one of the oldest members of the platoon. Clive Dunn himself was one of the youngest members of the cast. He was only 48, but he was playing someone probably in their early 70s. And he, he looked really, really old. He looked so old. Clive Dunn in Dad's Army is my idea of what an old man is. And, you know, we're, we're only a few years off that age now ourselves, terrifyingly. I mean, obviously he was made to look old with makeup. No, I, I, I understand the tricks of the trade. Oh, good. <laughs> he was very convincing, though. And also, being 48 in 1968 did make you sort of an old man. Whereas people in their 40s now are Virile. really still very young. Party people. Oh, yes. Jones's day job was the butcher. Yeah. But as an army man, he'd served in Sudan, the Boer War, and then the Great War. One of the sort of the most experienced people in the platoon. He had a fair few catchphrases. Do you remember any of them? Was he the one who would say, don't panic? Yeah, he'd say, don't panic, don't panic, while he was panicking. Yeah. He'd always ask for permission to speak, sir. Right, yeah. So he'd often say, they don't like it up em. That's a classic, yes. Then we had Private James Fraser. He was the Dow Scott, who'd say, we're doomed, doomed. Oh, yeah. Private Godfrey. He had a very weak bladder, so often had to be excused. We've mentioned Private Walker. He was the spiv, always looking for a deal. Walker was actually of an age where he could have joined the army. So the characters we've already talked about, they were too old. But he wasn't called up because he had an allergy to corned beef. <laughs> and, and this was a genuine allergy. It wasn't him spiving his way out. Who knows? And literally, who knows? It's one of three episodes that are still missing. Oh, OK. Three out of 80 are missing. That's a reasonably good hit rate by BBC standards in that other shows of the era were absolutely decimated. It's fortunate that there's only three that are missing of yes. that army. And I think some of the reason why it's not quite as decimated as it might have been is because Croft squirreled away tapes. Probably one of the most well-known characters is Private Pike. Yes. Played by Ian Lavender. He was a bit of a mother's boy, often wore a scarf over his uniform to keep him warm. Initially, he was too young to join the army. In fact, just like Perry, because Perry was a member of the forerunner to the Home Guard, the local defence volunteers, when he was just 17. Pike worked for Mannering in his day job as assistant bank clerk, and of course he calls Sergeant Wilson Uncle Arthur, and it was often implied Wilson was in a relationship with Mrs Pike. Why was Pike not sent off to fight in the actual army when he came of age? He had a rare blood group. Right. Good to have this knowledge in case I ever need to dodge the draft myself. Uh, I mean, you can't change your blood group, but I suppose you could claim to have an allergy to corned beef. <laughs> I am vegan, so hopefully that counts as an allergy to corned beef. They might say that if it's not going to actually bring you out in hives, tough. Oh, OK. Well, I'll keep working on it. Yeah. One of the, uh, the most famous clips involves Pike. The platoon has been ordered to guard the crew of a sunken U-boat. I tell you, Wilson, they're a nation of automatons. 
led by a lunatic who looks like Charlie Chaplin. <laughs> oh, dare you compare our glorious leader with that non-Aryan clown. Oh, okay. I Charles am Chaplin making notes, Captain. And your name will go on the list. And when we win the war, you will be brought to account. Write what you like. You're not going to win this war. Oh, yes, we are. Oh, no, you're not. Oh, yes, we are. <laughs> Whistle while you work. Hitler is a twerk. He's half army, so's his army. Whistle while you... Your name will also go on the list. <laughs> what is it? Don't tell him, Pike. <laughs> yeah, it's an excellent joke. One of the most famous jokes of British comedy, I think. Yeah, I think that's right. There was ARP Chief Warden Hodges, played by Bill Pertwee. He didn't really get on with the Home Guard, and he was often their foil. He'd call them, you ruddy hooligans, but he sort of always ended up on the receiving end of some sort of slapstick comedy. If someone was going to end up falling in the lake, it would be him. And there was also Reverend Timothy Farthing, and he had to reluctantly share his church hall with the platoon. But basically, every episode was the platoon getting into some sort of scrape. Very popular characters, a lot of it came out of the characters, but a lot of the sort of basic ideas followed through each episode. The three C's of British sitcom I've heard it described as before are character, catchphrase and class. And clearly Dad's Army is setting the template for those things because all elements of those are very strong in Dad's Army. Yeah, it has all three of those C's in spades. Dad's Army has a very famous title sequence a map showing Nazi arrows marching across Europe and British arrows trying to repel them. Actually, it was originally intended that the opening title sequence would feature real war footage, but Paul Fox again intervened and said you can't broadcast that, and so we ended up with the iconic map. And of course, the famous theme song, which I think Jimmy Perry co-wrote yeah. and received an Ivor Novello for songwriting. Who do you think you are kidding, Mr Hitler? If you think we're on the run We are the boys who will stop your little game We are the boys who will make you think again Cause who do you think you are kidding, Mr Hitler If you think old England's done Sung by Bud Flanagan, the last song that he recorded I think many people thought it was a genuine song from the Second World War. It's a pitch-perfect pastiche of wartime morale-raising troop songs, isn't it? Exactly. Just a couple of interesting bits on the production. Filming tended to revolve around Arthur Lowe's bowels. (laughs) David Croft tells this story in his autobiography. I mean, I'm going to paraphrase it. They couldn't start filming until Lode had his morning shit. I think that's reasonable. If if you are the star of a sitcom, then I think basically you can go and have a shit whenever you need to. And it sounds like he was regular as well. So that's helpful for a TV production schedule. (laughs) Yes. As well as having the bowel issues, he was never too sure of his words. He'd refused to take the script home because he didn't want that sort of material in his house. Oh, wow. He was snooty about sitcom, even though he was happy to make his living from it. Unfortunately, yes. But that's Dad's Army. Okay, well, Dad's Army, an extremely strong opener. So you've set the bar high. We'll have to see if you can beat your own pitch. The next show is a show I'm not pitching. Okay. I think we have to mention... It ain't half hot, Mum. I've got a feeling that either Croft or Perry said that they think this is the funniest show that they wrote. I think they've both said it. I've got a Jimmy Perry quote here. It is, without doubt, the funniest series David Croft and I wrote. 
Of course, it's also the show that we're not allowed to talk about anymore. It's regarded as a racist show. Yeah, the reason why it doesn't get repeated and the reason why it's not spoken of in such fun terms as the other Croft and Perry sitcoms is because it's full of crass racism. It's full of racism, it's got homophobia in there, and it's imperialistic. Yeah. The series is set in Burma during the last months of World War II, and it features a Royal Artillery concert party putting on shows for the troops. One of the key characters is the Indian bearer Ranji Ram, played by Michael Bates. Michael Bates being white. Yeah. The slight defence that was used at the time was that Bates was born in India, he served with the Gurkhas, and he spoke fluent Urdu, but it was an example of blackface. Yeah. Jimmy Perry rejected the notion of blackface. All he wore was a light tan. (laughs) Kind of misses the point. It was the way that things tended to be done on TV and film, although by the 70s, probably not quite so much. Maybe this was one of the later shows that was still using blackface in that way. Croft said in his autobiography, Today there'd be no difficulty, but in 1972 it was a very different story. There was no fundamental background of shows in which Indian actors could learn the trade. There were a number of actors who could handle small or cameo roles, but their technique was unsubtle to say the least. There was no one who could deal with a leading comedy part. That just makes it worse, doesn't it? Because he's saying it would have been impossible for us to find an Indian actor who was capable of playing the role, and I just call bullshit on that. There's one way to give people experience of working in sitcom, isn't there? Which is to cast them in sitcom. (laughs) Yeah. Windsor Davis's character, Battery Sergeant Williams, he's the only professional soldier amongst the concert party, and he's disgusted that his soldiers prance about, and he frequently calls them a bunch of poofs. Perry said people complained that the language was homophobic, and it was, but it was exactly how people spoke. It may have had an air of authenticity to it based on how people spoke in the army during World War II. It may even have been how some people spoke on the streets in the 1970s. These comedies are not supposed to be bits of social realism. They're not intended to accurately reflect how things were. And if they were supposed to be an accurate reflection of how things were, then there's lots of other things about the show which would be different. TV shows don't just reflect how people speak anyway. They help to inform how people speak. I think it's right it's not repeated anymore. But sad to say, it's not by any stretch of the imagination the worst example of comedies in the 70s. Obviously, that's absolutely correct. There were shows like Mind Your Language or Love Thy Neighbour, which were absolutely absolutely insidious. We can talk about cancel culture, we've talked about it before, but the truth is, sometimes you just look back on things and think, nobody would want to watch that now. No. That's not really cancel culture, that's just tastes changing, because we're trying to build a society that's more inclusive, and you know we don't wish to be reminded of the nonsense that we used to say to each other. So I'm not pitching, it ain't half hot mum. Okay, good. So what is your next pitch? My next pitch moves on from the war, it's Heidi High. Hody ho! So still very much set in the past from the time when it was broadcast. Yeah, so the first episode was broadcast on the 1st of January 1980, and it ran through to the 30th of January 1988. The first five series were set in 1959, while the last four were set in 1960. The action takes place in Maplin's, a fictional holiday camp owned by Joe Maplin. It's a spoof of Butlin's or Pontin's, those old school holiday resorts. Yes, and Perry and Croft had both worked at Butlins. After leaving the army, Perry was a red coat. Croft produced shows across a number of Butlins camps. He said of his Butlin shows, I don't think I ever put on a show of which I was not deeply ashamed. (laughs) 
So the idea is it's the staff of Maplins. Many of them are the entertainers there, yellow coats in that world. Butlins has red coats, Pontins has blue coats, Maplins has yellow coats. And that's exactly right, it revolves around the staff, many of whom are frustrated performers who dream of a better gig. So some of them are old showbiz hands who feel like they've been reduced to being yellow coats. And some of them are younger and dreaming of stardom in their future. And then there are some in the middle who believe they could still find fame and fortune and won't accept that working on a holiday camp is the best that they'll ever do. I don't know if that feels familiar. Middle-aged and doing a podcast and not realising this is the best (laughs) they'll ever do. You also had Sue Pollard's character... Peggy. That's right. She was the enthusiastic chalet maid. And she dreamed of becoming a yellow coat. So while they were jaded with the roles that they had, to her that was an aspiration in itself. Exactly. It's interesting how Sue Pollard came to be in it. While Croft and Perry were casting, Sue's agent persuaded them to see her, but they didn't really have a role. They realised she had talent and should be in the show, and so they wrote Peggy for her. Oh, that's interesting. And I mean, she really is the breakout character of Heidi High, isn't she? I mean, there are many characters in there who are very well known, but she's an 80s icon. That actor in that role was hugely successful. And you see it in the opening titles. For the first few series, she's not mentioned as one of the stars, but later on, she's added. The main thing that I remember from Heidi High is the final episode and the pathos of Peggy finally being granted the yellow coat just at the point that Maplins decides that they want to get rid of yellow coats. Yeah, she becomes a yellow coat in theory for two weeks, but actually only a day because she's so excited she suffers from nervous exhaustion. At the very end, we see her waving goodbye to the yellow coats and she goes back to her job as a maid because she decides it's better to have work than not. So yeah, a lot of pathos in that last episode. Absolutely. Ruth Maddock, another star of Heidi High, sadly passed on relatively recently. Yes, very sadly. She played Gladys Pugh, chief yellow coat and Radio Maplin announcer. Hello, campers. Heidi High! Oh! it's been and what a lot of fun we've all had in the olympic size swimming pool my my it was crowded but the water won't be so cloudy tomorrow our filters keep going all night and a lot of chlorine is put in so it'll be quite safe hello campers heidi hi <laughs> What a wet downpour we had last night. But how fresh it makes everything smell this morning. Those of you whose shallots leaked a little bit can take your bedding along to the boiler house where we have provided a ringer and drying lines entirely free of charge. I always love that they claim to have an Olympic-sized swimming pool. (laughs) That and the Hawaiian ballroom, essential camp facilities. I think the downpour might be based on a story Croft recounts of his Butlins days when Skegness was flooded to four feet and obviously got into all the chalets. The mattresses were sent to Profelli while new mattresses were ordered for Skegness because obviously campers at Profelli were not going to check to see if their mattress was damp. (laughs) That's outrageous. So that character Gladys, she was in love with the camp manager, right? Yes. At the start of the first episode, we see former Cambridge University professor of archaeology, Geoffrey Fairbrother, join Maplins as entertainment manager. He'd become bored of academia, and of course he was completely out of his depth. And yes, Gladys fell for Geoffrey. At the end of the 1959 season, Geoffrey's done his year, and he decides to move on. 
he's replaced by squadron leader Clive Dempster. Gladys was even more madly in love with Clive, and at the end of the series, she marries him. This is basically that classic sitcom trope of a character is replaced by another character who fulfills exactly the same role as the character that they're replacing. Upper middle class person who's been put into a managerial position despite not having a background in the area that they're now managing, and they have Gladys in love with them. The backstory of how Clive got his job is interesting from a class perspective as well, and I think says a lot about how real life operates in this country. Joe Maplin thought that the squadron leader's connection to aristocracy might help him get a knighthood. No, that doesn't happen in real life, especially not these days. Nobody's stitching up the establishment to try and get favours for themselves. No, sorry, my bad for assuming that. Okay, and other characters. So we had Paul Shane. He played Ted Bovis, the camp host. Ted had expected to get the entertainment manager's job, so was annoyed that he hadn't. And with Ted working class and Jeffrey middle class, this set up class-based comedy again. He was in that middle age bracket where he thought that he could still make it, but hadn't really accepted that no, the best he was going to do was be a camp host. He was always running scams to cheat the campers out of money. For example, he sold tickets to male campers to watch a pornographic film in the middle of the night. Right. I think one of the things that struck me was how he was always there. He'd be there in the morning doing entertainment. He'd be poolside in the afternoon, invariably throwing people in after whipping up the crowd with his catchphrase of Ted can't hear you. And then in the evening, he'd be in the Hawaiian ballroom doing his jokes. Singing Goodnight Campers right at the end of the evening set. Yeah, I guess they worked hard, those yellow coats. So the theme tune to Heidi High, Holiday Rock, another theme tune written by Jimmy Perry, and it was sung by a chap called Ken Barry. Paul Shane released it as a single in 1981. How well do you think it did in the top 40? I think it might have done something like 27. 36. Right. Paul Shane, does he have the best singing voice? Well, he fancied himself as a bit of a singer. I remember him on Pebble Mill at one. Well, it's funny you should say that. (laughs) There's no tenderness like people in your fingertips. You're trying hard not to show it. But baby, baby, I know you've lost that loving feeling. Oh, that loving feeling. You've lost that loving feeling. Now it's gone, gone, gone. Oh, oh, oh. Beautiful. Paul Shane singing in the club style. (laughs) That whole thing is unbelievably cringy, and it's, what, as recent as the 1980s? That was 1996. Oh, Jesus, are you serious? (laughs) 1996? Mm. That's in my adult's life. Extraordinary. And, of course, Shooting Stars had the club sing around, which I think might have been influenced by that. Indeed, they did play it once. Paul Shane's doing it entirely straight as well. He's not joking, right? No, played for real. Incredible. Baby, baby, 
I'll get down on my knees with you. We should talk about some of the other characters. Yeah. Spike Dixon, the camp comic. Oh, yeah, that was Jeffrey Holland. One of the young characters, really excited to be working in entertainment, not jaded at all. He was always foil for one of Ted's gags or he dressing up in some ridiculous costume. He was very likeable as a character, wasn't he? Totally. Then there was Fred Quilly, the riding instructor. He was a former jockey, but he lost his license due to cheating and he resents being there. But I think there are some other characters who resent it even more. Yvonne and Barry, the ballroom dance instructors. Yvonne in particular thought she was above everybody. Yeah. Mr. Partridge, he was the children's entertainer, a huge musical star, but now reduced to performing Punch and Judy, and he absolutely hates children. <laughs> the only thing left to say is it was set in the fictional town of Crimson-on-Sea, but filmed in a real holiday camp, Warner's Dovercourt in Essex. That camp closed in 1990 and is now the High Trees housing estate. They had wanted to film it in Butlins, but Butlins wanted absolutely nothing to do with it. I think that's probably understandable. Presumably by the 1980s, Butlins were trying to very much separate themselves from this image of a regimented holiday experience, almost like something from a prisoner of war camp. Yes, and they banned such catchphrases as Heidi High. I can well imagine. So, Heidi High, another very strong pitch. You're going to pitch two more David Croft sitcoms, but now it's time for me to throw in my own preference, and this is what you'll have to beat. It's one that people don't often talk about or remember particularly clearly, but I'm going to make a case that it might be Croft and Perry's masterpiece. It's You Rang, My Lord. Oh, interesting. So first of all, the theme song. Do you know who sang the theme song to You Rang, My Lord? Bob Monkhouse. Yep, Bob Monkhouse in a clipped 1920s style. From Mayfair to Park Lane, you will hear the same refrain in every house again, again. Me, Lord. Stepping out on the town, the social world goes round and round. The rich are up, the poor are down. You rang me, Lord. The bunny hug and the shim sham club, the Charleston at the Ritz. And at the trot, do the turkey trot, they give us more than a thousand hits. Saucy flappers in plush hats. You Rang My Lord was broadcast between 1990 and 1993. The creators and cast used to object to it being called a comedic version of Upstairs Downstairs, but that's clearly what it was. That's your elevator pitch. Yeah, it's an aristocratic townhouse with the Lord and his family living upstairs and his servants living downstairs. The comedy is in the interaction between these two very different social classes. It starred Paul Shane again, Jeffrey Holland and Sue Pollard, so all of whom we've just spoken about in the context of Heidi High, but also featured were Donald Hewlett and Michael Knowles from It Ain't Half Hot Mum and Bill Pertwee from Dad's Army. So some of Croft and Perry's alumni were reassembled. Yeah. It was a bit different from the standard sitcom format. It was 50 minutes per episode and it had continuing story arcs. So rather than the classic sitcom thing of resetting everybody back in the same situation at the end of every episode, story arcs would continue across episodes and across seasons. It also had very high production values. It was a sitcom, but was highly influenced by drama, the way that drama was written and shot. 
So in terms of characters, you have Lord Meldrum, the master of the house and owner of the Union Jack Rubber Company. He's having an affair with the wife of a fellow aristocrat. We've got his brother, Teddy, who's a posh twit, who's obsessed with housemaids. And then we've got Lord Meldrum's two daughters, Sissy, who I don't think it's ever stated, but we are to infer is a lesbian. Yeah. She's also a socialist. And we've got Poppy, who is spoilt and snobby. Yes. Downstairs amongst the servants... We've got the butler, Alf, who's played by Paul Shane. This is something of an evolution of his character from Heidi High. He's frustrated. He hates the Meldrums. He's always trying to scam them. He's a darker version, I would say, of the character that he's played in Heidi High. Oh, for sure. At least Ted Bovis is entertaining the guests. Alf Stokes just hates the Meldrums. We first meet his character in the first scene of the first episode on the battlefields of World War One, where he and another character, James, who I'll tell you about in a moment, come across Teddy, the posh twit. They think he's died. Alf decides to try to rob the dead body. Yeah. They realise that he's still alive and they take him to safety. And years later, that's what pays off with them having these roles in the house. But then there's the footman, James, who's played by Geoffrey Holland. He really wants to be the butler, and he always sides with the Meldrums, and he's in love with Poppy. So he's a sort of class traitor. Mm. He's snooty and snobby and above himself. Really quite different from Heidi High. His character in Heidi High is very lovable. His character in Yurang Lord is not lovable at all, really. And then we have Sue Pollard here playing Ivy. Only a slight evolution of her character in Heidi High. She's basically a maid again. Yeah, she's the housemaid. She's Alf's daughter, but they're keeping that secret. Right. She's very naive, very sweet. She's in love with the footman, James, but that's unrequited. She and James will often work together to try to stop Alf's schemes. And who was the scullery maid? Mabel. She was of even lower social standing than the servants, and she wasn't even allowed to eat at the table with them. Didn't she have one of the few catchphrases in the show? She did have a catchphrase, yeah. She'd be offered scraps, all the things that the servants didn't want to eat themselves, and then she went away with it wrapped up and would say, that'll be nice. Mabel, she's a relatively small character, and she's probably one of the few people you have sympathy for. Probably one of the issues with the show, and one of the reasons why it's not as fondly remembered as some of the other David Croft sitcoms, is I'm not really sure there are characters that you can root for. Everyone's a different shade of bad. Everyone's got flaws. Yeah, it makes for good comedy drama, Mm. but maybe doesn't make for something being really fondly remembered. Paul Shane and Geoffrey Holland were both lovable characters in Heidi High, but here, one of them's a cheating scoundrel, the other one's a snooty class traitor. Do you think if the characters had been more likeable, it would have made such a big difference? I think if they were looking for a huge mainstream hit that would be repeated forever and remembered fondly like Dad's Army, then yes, the way to do that would have been to make the characters more lovable. You and I enjoy a show with a bit of edge. You know, there's no lovable, cuddly characters on the day-to-day. What do you mean, Calatly Sisters? (laughs) What Croft and Perry were all about was huge mainstream hits. This show got really good viewing figures, but not to the standard of Dad's Army or Heidi High. And getting quite good viewing figures isn't really what Croft and Perry sitcoms are supposed to be about. They have to be the biggest shows on TV. Yeah. Yurang was actually commissioned for Thursday night, but got put out on a Sunday, and that probably didn't help. You might be right. People nowadays might vaguely recall that there was something that the cast of Heidi High went on to do together, and indeed they were reunited again for Oh Dr. Beeching. Indeed. But you'd struggle to find people who remember it that warmly and fondly in this country. However, in parts of Europe, in Hungary, for example, 
it is still hugely successful really? and, and repeated all the time. And the cast will often go out to Budapest to be fated. Who knew that Hungary would be the place where it was going to be so successful? You have these strange things, don't you? Like Norman Wisdom movies are really massive in Albania. Maybe cracking TV will become big in Bulgaria. Hope so. Bulgaria's nice. I think Croft considers this the jewel in the, the Croft and Perry crown. And again, is probably a bit frustrated. They've said that the funniest thing that they did was It Ain't Half Hot Mum. But overall, I think the thing that they're proudest of was You Rang My Lord. I like the ambition of it. I like the fact that it broke the boundaries and went for these longer episodes and these overarching story arcs. Having said that, that's almost putting a slight on the sitcom because there's nothing wrong with half-hour self-contained sitcoms that are there to make you laugh. No, but I guess it's true of any creative, isn't it? You want to keep pushing boundaries and try new things. Yeah, absolutely right. Maybe this sense of trying to break the boundaries and trying to step into the territory of drama is overreaching and is unnecessary because it's like, actually, the art form that you were good at is absolutely fine. There's nothing wrong with recording a three-minute perfect pop single and you don't have to make it into a 16-minute jazz funk odyssey. Well, this is true. Working within the constraints of an art form is a real skill, a real talent. So whilst I have brought this along as the one that I'm pitching, and I think there is a case that can be made that this is them at their peak, sort of throwing everything they've learned together and taking it somewhere else. I'm also open-minded to the things that you have pitched and to the things that you will go on to pitch. That's good to know I've got a chance. Yeah. What have you got next from the David Croft back catalogue? My third pitch is the first show that David Croft wrote with Jeremy Lloyd, Are You Being Served? Lloyd had a background in writing and performing, notably appearing in Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In, as well as cameos in the Beatles films A Hard Day's Night and Help. However, it was one of his first jobs as a junior sales assistant in the menswear department at Simpsons of Piccadilly that would provide the inspiration for Are You Being Served? The show was set in the flagship department store of the chain Grace Brothers, and the series starts with the reorganisation of the store, which sees the gentleman's department having to share space with the ladies' department, setting up the key plot device of tensions between the two departments. And like all the shows we've talked about, the British class system is a frequent source of material. Did it begin in the 1970s and run into the 80s? That's exactly right. And it's interesting that the pilot episode was created as part of the BBC's comedy Playhouse series, but originally the BBC chose not to broadcast it, and it was only shown as filler during the 1972 Summer Olympics, when the games were interrupted by the Munich Massacre. And it only got a series because David Croft happened to be in the office of Head of Light Entertainment Bill Cotton when Cotton got news that the planned series of Till Death Us Do Part was going to be delayed. And Croft said, I'll do you some Are You Being Served then? Literally in the right place at the right time. Absolutely. And the show would run for 70 episodes across 10 series. I don't remember Are You Being Served particularly well, I must admit. I definitely did see it as a child, and some of the characters and catchphrases have stuck in my head. But it's not a show that I have a great memory of. How about you? It was repeated in the 90s on BBC One, and I know it from that. The men's department features haughty floorwalker Captain Peacock, played by Frank Thornton, incompetent manager Mr Rumbold, played by Nicholas Smith, the camp sales assistant Mr Humphreys, played by John Inman, and junior sales assistant Mr Lucas, played by Trevor Bannister. While over in the ladies' department, we had senior sales assistant with her colourful bouffant Mrs Slocum, played by Molly Sugden, and the cockney junior sales assistant Miss Brahms, played by Wendy Richard. And the owner of the chain was the out-of-touch and very old young Mr Grace. He'd tell the staff, you've all done very well in lieu of actually paying them a decent salary. So a lot of the show's humour was based on innuendo, misunderstanding and farce. 
Sight gags were generated by the outrageous costumes the characters had to wear for store promotions and the display stands that frequently featured malfunctioning robotic mannequins. I remember Mrs Slocum's pussy being one of the most common sources of innuendo. I don't know what you mean. She was only telling stories about her cat, Tiddles. Good morning, Mrs Slocum. Good morning, Mrs Peacock. One minute late. You're lucky to have me at all, Captain Peacock. I had to thaw me pussy out before I came. <laughs> well, if I'm not home on the stroke of six, my pussy goes mad. I never have any trouble in getting up in the morning. My pussy's just like an alarm clock. Whether <laughs> I'm here at all, you know. My pussy got soaking wet. I had to dry it out in front of the fire before I left. <laughs> must have been awful for you. Oh, it was. Well, Mrs Axelby could see the state I was in, so she went straight up to the sergeant at the desk and she said, have any of your constables reported having seen this lady's pussy? I've got to get home. If my pussy isn't attended to by eight o'clock, <laughs> I shall be stroking it for the rest of the evening. <laughs> It's not the most sophisticated humour, is it? Still, it was super popular. Absolutely. And then a lot of the double entendre came from Mr Humphreys. After a few episodes, Bill Cotton told David Croft to get rid of the poof. Oh, wow. So this is going back to what we were talking about earlier, about inappropriate language being used every day. Croft says, if that character goes, he goes. And of course, Mr Humphreys stayed and became one of the most loved characters in the series. It's interesting, isn't it? I think that that character was unpopular with lots of gay men and lesbians in the 1970s because the character was an embodiment of gay stereotypes. But at the same time, I think his sexuality is never actually stated. It's not. It's an interesting one, isn't it? I mean, you have that character, Mr Humphreys, you have someone like Larry Grayson and his act. Obviously, there is a certain stereotype going on. But you could argue that in a very conservative country, they were trailblazers. They became much-loved characters and people. And would we have the acceptance that we have today if we hadn't had had those people doing what they were doing? It's an interesting question. I guess there's an argument that any sort of on-screen representation was in some way progressive, even though as we look back on it now, it looks anything but progressive. Yeah. The opening theme established the retail setting. Sound supervisor Adam Bishop Leggett recorded and arranged real store sounds. Stephanie Gatercole, she played Mr Rumble's assistant, provided the voice. And BBC light entertainment music god Ronnie Hazelhurst turned it into a tune. That really is one of the classic BBC theme tunes of all time, isn't it? I mean, it's, Absolutely. it's a brilliant tune. It's got a brilliant feel to it. The whole conceit of you're in a lift and this is the lift attendant announcing to you what's happening on the floors that you're in is fantastic. And an early example of rap music years before the Sugar Hill Gang. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure that was a huge influence on the, the kids in the Bronx. Well, I mean, you joke. The show was at one point the BBC's biggest earner in America. Is that right? That's fascinating. I guess your initial instinct is what would an American audience have to latch onto or relate to in Are You Being Served? 
But maybe that's the point in that it doesn't relate at all to American life. It's a very British idea. It feels very British, yes. And in fact, it wasn't just in the States. An Australian version of Are You Being Served was actually made in 1980. John Inman went to Australia and reprised his role as Mr Humphreys. He's sent to Australia by Mr Grace to work temporarily for his Australian cousin, Mr Bone, at Bone Brothers. Right, so really it's an Australian remake, but it also works as an in-universe sequel. Exactly, yes. The original series ended because Croft thought they'd got everything out of the department store setting, but he thought they weren't quite done with the characters. So in the early 90s, there was a spin-off called Grace and Favour. Don't know if you remember that? I do remember that, yes. So the setup was that the Grace brothers had invested the staff's pensions into not necessarily traditional investments, and then they didn't have cash to be paid out, so they inherited a big house that they were running as a B&B. Exactly, the house Millstone Manor. And incredibly, they came up with this plot just before the news of Robert Maxwell embezzling his staff's pensions came out. So remarkably topical. Right, yes. But yeah, that is Are You Being Served? Very fondly remembered show, particularly a couple of characters in that that really broke through into the culture. So it's a contender. But what's your final pitch? Well, my final pitch is, I think, one of the funniest shows ever written. Okay, that's a strong claim. Yeah, it's a low, a low. The series focuses on the life of a French cafe owner, René Artois, played by Gordon Kay. It's set in the town of Nouvion during the German occupation of France in the Second World War. And the cafe is a safe house for the French resistance, and René is the reluctant hero of the resistance. Croft and Lloyd devised the concept as a parody of the BBC drama Secret Army, and it ran for 85 episodes in nine series from 1982 to 1992. It seemed to me to be on forever. Throughout my childhood, it was always on. Uh, I was never a huge fan of it, to be honest, although I appreciate that you were and lots of people were. But one thing is notable is that it ran even longer than the Second World War did. Yes. <laughs> there seemed to be a million episodes of it as well. Now, I, I think I'm right in saying that it's pretty standard, sort of six or seven episodes per series, except didn't they do one series where they did a, a US-style season of something like 26 episodes? That's exactly right. It was exactly 26 episodes. So Series 5 was commissioned with the idea of syndicating the show in America. Right. They ran the episodes 25 minutes rather than 30, so ads could be inserted. The deal didn't go ahead, so Series 6 went back to a more manageable eight episodes. Right, okay. If we were to draw a bit of a distinction between the shows that David Croft wrote with Jimmy Perry versus the ones that he wrote with Jeremy Lloyd, the style of the humour feels notably different, I would say. The Jeremy Mm. Lloyd shows relying a lot on innuendo and wordplay, which you don't get as much of in Dad's Army and Heidi High. I think that's right. I think there's more innuendo, there's more farce in the Jeremy Lloyd series. Yes. So as well as René in the cafe, we had his wife Edith, the waiting staff Yvette, Maria, and then later Mimi LeBonk. <laughs> See, that's the high standard of comedy that I come to expect from Allo Allo. Yes, but it's making you laugh. Edith's mother, Madame Fanny, is bedridden upstairs in a bed that doubles as the radio for communication with London. Yeah, I remember that. The resistance is led by Michel Dubois, while doddery Monsieur Leclerc is central to many of the schemes. The Germans are led by General von Klinkerhofen, with Captain von Strom, Lieutenant Gruber, he has a little tank, and Private Hilger Gerhardt keeping them all in check. In later series, they are joined by the Italian Captain Bertarelli, and then the Gestapo, led by Herr Flick with Assistant von Smallhausen, is feared by almost everyone, including the Germans, but that's except for Hilger, who is madly in love with Herr Flick. Finally, the British are represented by Officer Crabtree, Airman Fairfax and Carstairs, and as a voice on the other end of the radio. 
And that's where you got the humour from that the British people were really poor at speaking French. Yes. The key device is that all characters spoke English, but with theatrical foreign accent to distinguish each nationality. And the French and German characters could understand each other, but the English characters could not understand without someone translating. The best example is, of course, Officer Crabtree, played by Arthur Bostrom. He's an English spy posing as a French police officer, but his French, very weak. This leads to the seminal catchphrase, good moaning. So the conceit there is that we're supposed to understand that he's speaking in French, getting the words wrong. That's exactly it, yes. Possibly my favourite example of Crabtree's French is the following. I was pissing by the door when I heard two shots. You are holding in your hand a smoking goon. You are clearly the guilty potty. See, even as a kid, I found that a bit juvenile. But there is part of me that wants to laugh. It is juvenile, but it's funny. You have René, who's a serial philanderer, who's having relationships with the women who work in his cafe, but is also somehow at the centre or the nexus between the French resistance, the invading German forces and the British spies. Yes, the series features a couple of overarching plot lines. The first concerns the theft of a valuable painting from the town's chateau, The Fallen Madonna with the Big Boobies by Van Klomp, and it's stolen in the first episode by the Germans, and they pass it to René for safekeeping from the Gestapo. Over the course of the series, forgeries are made and destroyed, they're hidden in sausages and in other places. At one point it was hidden behind another painting, cracked fars with the Big Daisies, and it got to the point where nobody ever knew who had the original. Even the writers had trouble keeping up with where they <laughs> placed the painting. The second recurring story involves the fate of two stranded British airmen shot down over Nuvion, and several plans were made by Michelle to send them back to England. René was forced to hide them in his cafe and help in her schemes. So you mentioned René's romantic links with his staff. His liaisons with Yvette would invariably be interrupted by his wife. Oh, René! in your underwear with a servant girl in her nightgown. You stupid woman. <laughs> I was just about to join you upstairs when I heard a prowler and came to investigate. Do you not realise it is a mortal sin to harbour such jealous thoughts? Oh, you are right. I am so far from being perfect for you. An example of gaslighting and abusive behaviour played for laughs there. Well, yes. <laughs> Now, Edith would entertain the clientele in the cafe with her singing. This led to a recurring gag where René would sell cheese to the patrons to put in their ears so they didn't have to listen. <laughs> it is cabaret time at Café René. And here, as you might expect, your very own Nightingale of Nouvion, Madame Edith. Oh. Thank you for that warm welcome. Today... I would like to sing for you one of my favourites, and I hope one of yours. Boom! Why did my heart go boom? Me and my heart go boom! Boom, boom, I found you. Boom! Edith, you've cleared the room! The series did rely on a lot of catchphrases. Now, we've heard a few. Here are a few more for you. Listen very carefully. I shall say this only once. What a mistake of the maker. It is I, Leclerc. 
I mean, I must admit, I am finding it funnier now hearing you describe it and hearing these clips than I remember finding it at the time. So either I misremembered the quality of the show or you're doing a very good pitch. It's raised a few smiles as you've been reminiscing here. I'm glad you're enjoying it. I think there's a few things that appealed. I mean, when you're 10 and you hear someone saying pissing by on television. Yep, true. Yes, there's some very base comedy in it. And I think we both like innuendo. We both like slapstick. And Aloha Low has that. Yeah. But it does also have these complex plots. Each episode can be watched standalone, but those continuing plots meant that at the start of every episode, they had to get René to deliver a piece to camera, breaking the fourth wall to explain what's going on. So, you know, it's not quite like you rang the Lord, where you were saying that you had to watch each episode. They were quite careful to make the episode standalone, but definitely there were continuing stories throughout the entire series. Hugely popular, ran for a really long time. David Croft left after six series. He basically felt that the show was done. The show then ran for another three series after Croft left, and Lloyd teamed up with Paul Adam to write the remaining series. I think you could argue that those last three series, perhaps they weren't as strong. After Richard Gibson decided he no longer wanted to play Hair Flick, they invented a plot where the character had plastic surgery, so when they took the bandages off, he could be played by a new actor. Class. It's interesting that Alo Alo and Dad's Army are both World War II comedies that have endured, both in terms of their original run and how much they're still loved. Is this something about Britain's relationship with the Second World War that we've never really moved on from it? I think there's a certain truth to that, and I think it's probably more true with Dad's Army than Alo Alo, but I think both shows have probably contributed to that feeling that Britain has never quite moved on from the Second World War in the way other countries in Europe have. On quite a simple level, it's a comforting story to tell ourselves, isn't it, World War II? Despite the obvious extreme and horrific tragedies and, and hardships, at this sort of distance, people can look back in it as a triumph, a victory, not just militarily, but also in terms of the spirit and togetherness of the country. And I think these are the reasons why we continually hark back to it. I think that's right. You know, plucky British standing up on our own, defeating tyranny. And I think it is also important to say, of course, in no way are, are either of us implying that we shouldn't be remembering the sacrifice that people made. Absolutely. They weren't taking the piss out of the war, were they? No, and Croft was careful not to undermine the seriousness of the war, in spite of the farcical situations. Before filming scenes where René and the Resistance were on a mission, he would remind the cast of the real-life dangers people faced. It's sometimes seen as controversial the way the show sends up different nationalities, but it does it to everyone, including the British. Croft said of the characters, Our Germans are insensitive, nest-feathering and kinky, the French are devious, nest-feathering and immoral, and the British are real twits. <laughs> but not nest-feathering, which is interesting. <laughs> and that's my pitch for a lower low. Okay, pretty soon I'm going to make a decision on what gets the commission, but before I do that, as is tradition, I want to test your knowledge to see if you're a suitable producer of a David Croft comedy. In 1994, Jimmy Perry wrote a radio sitcom about the early years of the BBC in the 1920s, which he said was his proudest achievement. What was it called? I have absolutely no idea. I'll give you a clue. Think The Clash. Uh, London Calling. Correct. I'll let you have that because it was hard. Thank you. The theme tune from Heidi High, called Holiday Rock, we mentioned earlier, was sung by Ken Barry. Ken Barry also provided the voice of which animated character from the fictional village of Greendale? Greendale's postman Pat. 
So I suppose it's either going to be Postman Pat or Ted Glenn. What are you going for? Um, I'm going to go Ted Glenn. The answer on the card is Postman Pat. Oh, you're joking. I mean, Ken Berry did play both characters, if I was being fair, but I'm not being fair. You should have been aware that he did both of those voices. Oh, come on. The answer on the card is final. Swat. Right, I'm definitely not giving you the point now. In 1975, Windsor Davies and Donna Stell released a single as their It Ain't Half Hot characters and got to number one in the charts for three weeks. What was the song? I don't know. Any clues? If you don't know it, you won't know it. It was Whispering Grass. Okay. But it does show you how popular that show was. So far, you've got one right out of three. Really, if you want to show me that you're an apt producer, you have to be getting this right. David Croft had a strong dislike for what he called vomit comedy. Which sitcom from the 1980s did he blame for pioneering such baseness? I'm going to guess the young ones. The young ones is correct. Well done. You sneaked over the line. Oh, that was lucky. Yeah, so two out of four. I, I will consider you as a potential David Croft producer. Now we just need to decide which show we're going to commission. So if it's you rang my lord, then you have to leave here in ignominy and disgrace. Yes. But if it's one of the four that you pitched, you leave here with the hefty sack full of cash to go and produce your David Croft sitcom. Give me the cash. I'm ready to give you my decision. Of the ones that you pitched me, they're all relatively strong. It's quite hard to, to choose a weak one between them. But the first one that I'm going to rule out is Are You Being Served? Okay. It's funny, it's of its time, it's certainly iconic. I think big gay stereotypes and women making jokes about their pussy. It's not the standard of sitcom that we're looking for on Cracking TV now. Cracking TV is a network for the 2020s. That's right. Now, whatever we do go with is going to be a bit dated. That's fine. But Are You Being Served? It's just less relevant today. Fair enough. Heidi High, I really enjoyed as a child and thought was a lot of fun. The only reason I'm going to rule that out is because of how absolutely iconic and enduring both Dad's Army and Allo Allo are. I think those are your two strongest pitches. Okay. So those two are still in contention. As is You Rang My Lord, which, as I say, I did pitch as being potentially the David Croft masterpiece. However, even as I was talking about it, the more I started to think to myself, the reason I'm rating this so highly is because it's got these elements of drama. It's got this longer runtime. It's got these expensive production values. It's got these overarching storylines that made me think, well, why am I necessarily crediting those things as being more worthy than, than the sitcom art? And actually, I think that's a complete fallacy. So I'm ruling out my own argument there and taking you rang my lord off the table. Oh, so I'm, I'm getting a commission. You are getting a commission. So the only question now is whether it will be Dad's Army or Allo Allo. Both David Croft sitcoms about World War II, one of them co-written with Jimmy Perry, one of them co-written with Jeremy Lloyd. Both of them ran for years. Both of them have been repeated endlessly. So they feel like a fair fight against each other. Allo Allo used to irritate me a bit. At the time, I thought the sort of silly voices and the innuendo and the constant repetition of storylines were irritating. But I've heard you describe them today and you've made me smile, made me even laugh a bit. You were smiling at those clips. I'm going to say, hello, hello. I'm sorry for the times that I've denigrated it. I think it's worthy of a rewatch. But really, Dad's Army, from the theme tune, the characters 
the writing, the performances, and the special place it holds in the heart of the viewing public. I think Dad's Army has a place on any mainstream TV channel. I think it would fit in very, very nicely in the cracking TV schedule. And that is what I'm going to award the commission to. Woohoo, I've got a commission and it's Dad's Army. I'm very pleased with that. Thank you very much. Congratulations. Is that the one that you were hoping for? I was probably hoping for a lower low, if I'm honest. But I'm very happy that Dad's Army's got through. Good. Congratulations on getting your commission. And we should finish this in the style of a David Croft sitcom. So you have been listening to John Furlong and Luke Sluman. Our rather marvellous theme tune was written and performed by Simon McInerney. Luke and John Cracking TV is an IHOG factual entertainment production. It's time to change the channel to Luke and John Cracking TV. Luke and John Cracking TV.